Hey, we are in a series called Refined by Fire, right? It's a series based on the letter of Peter to the churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And Peter wrote this letter around 64 AD during the reign of Emperor Nero. And it was a reign of just complete chaos and massacre for Christians because during this season, the emperor of Rome saw Christians as a threat. They, ref they, they saw Christianity as an affront to the cultural order of that time, right? Christians refused to bend the knee to the cultural norms like sex or government or family and power. So in the midst of this hard time of persecution, of, of tragedies and trials, Peter writes this letter to all the Christians in the known world, and he tells them this, now is the season for maturity. Now is the season to hold on to the faith that has brought you here. Now is the season to look to the good news of who Jesus Christ is, the hope of glory, your hope. Now is the season to grow. To grow into maturity by, the testifying, by testifying the true grace that comes from who God is. And so in the same way in our time and age as believers today, we live in a culture where we have an increasing breakdown of the biblical Christianity, right? Breakdown of the family unit, the rise and the eradication of all things sex and gender related, an opposing world philosophy where once man was held accountable to his actions by God, now he's beholden to the voice and will of the woke mob. We are living in a season and a time where we find ourselves with the same mandate. It is the time to grow. It is the time to mature. It is the time to live out your Christian faith. It is the time to live out your new birth. It is the time to actually reflect what you say you believe. It is the time to not just live your Christian life as if it was a pastime, but that it was real time. And this is the letter that Peter writes, and it's meant to help us deal with times of tragedy and times of trial. And so I want to start this message with a video, and let me premise this video. It's just a very quick video. It's, it's a video uh, in regards to things change. Things change when you have the right words. Things change when you have the word, right? And so I wanted to share this video. It's a video of a blind guy, and uh, this girl shows up, changes the sign. He was a blind guy, but he wasn't getting any, like, you know, he was asking for money. He was begging for it. And not many people were giving him anything. And this girl shows up, changes the sign, and all of a sudden, things change for him. So check this out.
did you do to my sign? I wrote the sign, but in different words. Thanks, love. plug for whatever that was, right? The thing about living during difficult times and tragedies and trials is two things can happen. You can be refined by your trials and tragedy, or you can be reduced to nothing by your trials and tragedy. Imagine two people going through the exact same situation. One comes out of it bitter, resentful, perpetually sour, their lives ruined and spoiled. And another comes out of it, they're going through the exact same thing, humbler, more softer, helpful, more willing to help others. Sometimes they come out with more purpose and vision for their life. And the difference between these two is like the video. It's the word you know. It's the word you have. In this case, for Christians, we have the living word. We have the living word, the living hope, Jesus Christ himself. And so the question I want to engage today, because before we get into how to deal with our trials with Jesus and how does Jesus actually help us through our trials and our tragedies, we have to ask the real harder question is this. Can you know of the certainty that when you go through fires, that when you go through trials, that when you go through tragedy, that you actually have the word to refine you? Because if you have the word, if you have Christ, then the trials and tragedy only makes you better. But if you do not have him, if you do not know him, if you do not experience him, if you don't have the reality of him, the trials and the tragedies will reduce you to absolute nothing. Are you going to be refined by the fire or ruined by it? And that's the question I want to ask today. T today we're going to talk about salvation. I want to kind of give us a quick glimpse into it again. The picture of why God saves us. The motivation of why God saves us. The mode in which he saves us or how he saves us. And then two applications, two litmus tests to see if you understand that salvation is yours. To kind of address and discern and reflect to see if salvation is yours. So two things today about salvation. Because the question again is this. You can be refined by fire, or you can be ruined by it. You can be refined by tragedy, or you can be ruined by tragedy. The only difference is the word. Can you be assured that you have him? Can you be assured of him? So let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about this. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, chapter 1, I'm sorry, verses 3 to 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. The motive of why God saves us. The motive of why God saves us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Check this out. Praise be to God, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay? The motive of our salvation, why God saves us. Verse 3, check this out. He says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy. In his great mercy. Why does God save? 
Why does God even engage in the act of saving? In the Bible, what Peter is saying is very clear. It's because of his mercy. Everybody say mercy. Right? The mercy of God is the fountain of everything. The mercy of God is what comes to us. There's no other reasons that gives you the ability to be saved. Because the moment you begin to say to yourself, I am saved by God's mercy and fill in the blank, then you are no longer engaged in understanding why you are saved. Because now you are not looking to yourself. You're looking to your own pride. You're looking to your own abilities, your own arrogance. Right? If you say, I am saved because of God's mercy and because I'm more receptive to God, then now all of a sudden we have to ask the question, why are you more receptive to God versus somebody else? Why are you more open to God than somebody else? Well, because I listen more. Why do you listen more than somebody else? Well, because I'm more attentive. Then why are you more attentive than somebody else? Because I was raised in a house that taught me to be attentive. Why were you in there versus not somebody else? You see, if you keep asking the question, the final answer is you are saved because of his mercy. It has nothing to do with you. And mercy is simply this, not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. Do you realize that in the human race, the human reality is we are rebels against God. We have inherited the very sin, the very rebellious heart, seed of Eve and Adam. When they chose themselves that I know better than God, I understand better than God, you have inherited that seed and you are now living in perpetuality of that seed. And the only recourse The only conclusion of that rebellion is separation from God. So instead of getting that, though, Peter says, in his great mercy, he has saved you. And you know how that's so beautiful when it has nothing to do with you and all to do with God? Because it renders everyone on equal playing field. It renders everybody on an equal playing field. If you have an inferiority complex... Were you thinking like, oh, so-and-so is so much better, so-and-so is so great, I wish I could be with that group, I wish I could be with this group, I wish I could look like her, I wish I could be like him. When you have that inferiority complex, the gospel, the mercy of God renders that absolutely foolish. Because why? In the eyes of God, you who think of yourself so small and that person whom you are elevating so high, in the eyes of God, you're both sinners in need of salvation. You're both broken, both rebels in the eyes of God. There is no higher or lower. And in the same way, if you have a a superiority complex, I'm richer, I'm smarter, I'm better, I'm wiser, I'm better looking, you fill in the blank and you compare yourself and you judge yourself based on what you have accomplished versus everybody else. In the eyes of God, because of his mercy, you realize something. I am no better than anybody else. It renders you absolutely on an equal playing field. So that every man and every woman look at each other and know that in this room, I am not saved because I am somehow better or worse than you. I am saved because of his mercy to me. Right? Oh, awesome. Right? Hey, we're not in the library here, by the way, guys. You guys are free to respond, okay? All right? All right. The Bible tells us, the Bible... (laughs) I'm shook. I'm sorry. All right. Let me me get back there. All right. The Bible tells us he wants everyone to be redeemed. That's in the Bible. He wants everybody to be redeemed. The question you have to ask, and the question that's normal, that's, that's right to ask is, why is 
Why is it that God doesn't save everybody then? Why is his mercy not given to everybody? Why doesn't he go get everybody? If he wants everybody to be redeemed, why doesn't he do it? And I can give you a long theological discourse on this. I can break down all the arguments about this, but I'm going to give you one answer. The answer is mercy. The day when you stand before his throne and you ask him this cosmic question and he reveals to you this cosmic answer, the only revelation and the only thing that you would respond and say is, praise your mercy, O God. See, because the reason why you have that, that reflex to ask such a question is because you think that you can imagine a greater scheme of salvation than God. Think about this. Right? You're asking the question, why doesn't God go get everybody? Because somehow you believe that you have the ability to see all the variables throughout time, that you can extrapolate all of the situations and scenarios, that you understand how all things work. You understand the microcosm, the macrocosm of all things working together, and you are able to do all these things, and therefore you say, why can't you just save everybody, God? But the answer is, the simple answer why does God save? Mercy. And when you stand before him that day, his plan for salvation, you will realize, is more merciful than anything that you can possibly imagine. When you stand before him that day, you will realize the source of everything, the, why, the reason why you're a Christian is his mercy. And Peter, in writing to the people scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, as they're going through persecution, as they're going through trials and tragedies, as their wives are being taken away, raped and murdered, as their kids are being sold to slavery, as the men are being killed in the Colosseums, as these things are happening to real-life Christians, real-life neighbors, he calls them, he reminds them, remember that you were saved not because of what you do and what you don't do. You're saved because of his mercy. That's the reason why. But here, let me tell you this part. How does he save us? The mode of God, of how God saves us. How does he do that? The Bible says this. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. The mode of salvation of how God saves us is that he gives us a new birth. Everybody say new birth. New birth. The difference between a Christian and non-Christian is not an addition. See, I think some of us, we got the wrong impression when it comes to Christianity. You think that Christianity is now I'm a Christian because I know Jesus and I have read the Bible. I know Jesus and now I have uh, added this custom and this structure to my life. I know Jesus now because I have added this new um, uh, tradition of going to church every day. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is not a, quality, not a difference of degree, but a difference of quality. It's a difference of essence. It's the idea of a new birth. A Christian is someone with a new nature, a new desire, a new inclination. You're not someone who is two human beings and one person just adds a little bit extra stuff to his life or to her life. A Christian is a total transformed person, a new birth, something renewed, regenerated, changed. That's happening in the life of a person. God's substance is in you, exploding from within you, changing you from the inside out. Let me give you an example, right? Let me give you an example. What I mean by new desires, right? As regular human beings, if I gave you two plates, one plate full of maggots, one plate full of uh, big old nice T-bone steak, which one would you naturally incline to pick? I hope you say steak, okay? Because if you say maggots, um, 
<laughs> something's wrong, okay? Right? Can you choose the maggots? Of course you can. You, if you want to, you can, right? But would you be inclined to choose the maggots? Probably not, right? You would be naturally, reflexively choosing the steak. In the same way a new birth is this. Before you are a believer, two plates are before you. God and life. God and my life. And before you were a believer, what you chose, what you were inclined to choose every single time, my life, my desires, my ambition, my future, my want, my hurt, my pain, my desires, right? You choose you. The new birth all of a sudden changes the desires. You still may hunger for this, but your desire is for this. You want God. You want to please him. You want to bless him. You want to honor him. You want to glorify him. You want to make sure his name is known. It's his name that is known, not my name. All of a sudden, your new desire kicks in. There's an inclination. There's a reflex that chooses that. Let me ask you a question, church. If this is salvation and how God does it, have you experienced a new birth? Right? Have you gone through it? Have you known it to the depth of your heart? Have you been transformed by it? Or, listen, or is it something you just kind of pick up here and there? Is the new birth something that you kind of just add on to your life and you call yourself a believer here and there? Or is it the actual realization and reality of your life? Is there a desire for God? And I'm not trying to guilt you here. I'm not trying to... um, put some sort of pressure, added pressure on what it means to be a believer here. I'm just asking you to be real. I'm asking you to be honest with your heart. Because like the passage says that, you know, Kayla read, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Because here they are, they're declaring that I am a believer, I love God, I follow God, but their heart, their desire, their inclination, their want is for their own life. Their fear of God is best by words and not by reality. How does God save you? There is a new birth. There is a transformation. There is a way of thinking that is transforming your heart, your mind, your soul, your, your, your body. The way you think is re- reformed. The way you feel begins to be changed. And the way you act is different. That's why the Roman Empire hated Christians in the beginning. They said, like, share your wife with us. Share your husband with us when they have parties. And people, Christians, were like, um, I'll share with you my bread. I'll share with you my water, I'll share with you my wine, but I will not share with you my bed. Why? Because that's not what my God desires. That's not where my God is is, is saying is beautiful or wonderful when it comes to sex. I live to please him. And so the Roman Empire saw Christians as an affront to their culture, as a rebellion to their way of life. And therefore hunted them down, left and right. See, when you begin, listen, church, when you begin to live out your new birth, see, if you have the new birth, when you begin to live out that new birth, no matter what's going to happen, like I said last week, you will be incredibly attractive to the world around you, at the same time, extraordinarily offensive. It's impossible not to have that happen. The way you begin to think the way you begin to feel towards things, the way you begin to act towards things, it is contrary and different to the world around you. You don't fit in anywhere. That's how you know the new birth is alive in you. And that's how God 
brings about his salvation. The question you have to ask your heart, is it there? Is it there? Because if it is, then my next question to you is, then how come we don't see it alive and breathing and living in you? Do your neighbors see it? Does your family see it? Do the people around you recognize it? They may not buy into it, but they should look at you and say, this person incredibly attractive and yet extraordinarily offensive. You see, sometimes in the Christian life, in the Christian church, we bought into these kind of cliches. We buy into these kind of basic actions we've done throughout our whole life. And so we just think, like, if I show up to church, if I do these things, then all things will work out for me. But salvation is not that. Salvation is a power that comes upon you. Salvation is a transformation that happens to you from the inside out. And you may not experience the fullness of it right away. And the Bible says you won't, right? It's not the fullness of it, right? But it is working, empowering you, changing you, forcing you to turn away from things that you once loved so deeply and now moving towards things that you never thought you would actually even want or desire. Is there a new birth in you? Do you recognize it? And let me finish with this, okay? Two signs you've been born again. Two signs that salvation is alive in you. Two signs in which you know the mercy of God is prevalent in your life. Two signs in which you understand that the new birth is actually breathing, living from the inside out inside of you. Two signs that you know this new life is in you. Verse 3 to 5, look what he says. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. A living hope. The living hope is Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Now, let me, let me get this idea of hope because I think in our modern day time, we get the word hope wrong. We think the idea of hope is optimism, sunny disposition, you know, keep a good side, you know. Think about the good, think about the positive. Hope here is not simply look on the bright side of something. It does not mean simply to look for the best in people. That's not what hope is. Hope is not about sunny disposition or positive optimism here. That's not hope. The living hope that Peter is talking about is this. It means an assured conviction, an assured conviction of the triumph of God. When you have the surety that Christ resurrected from the dead, he is our living hope. Do you have that hope in you? Can I tell you what that means? Let me give you an illustration, right? Uh, Dallas Cowboys, back in the days, they had this quarterback named uh, something Roger. Roger the Dodger, right? Basically, he was known to, like, come back from being down in, in, uh, in the football game. Like, he'll be down, like, 10 points in the game, and in the last five minutes, he'll, he'll rally his whole team to come back. Now, here's the thing about the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, I think, uh, I think one of our guys loved Dallas Cowboys, right? But before they got really, really good, right, there was a season where... Coming, it was, if you're a fan of Dallas Cowboys, watching it, it's just like having a heart attack. Because you're just like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, he's down again. Like, what's going to happen? And then at the end, he wins, right? It's, it's like this, this emotional roller coaster ride, right? And there's a story about this dude. He, he, was a, he was in the army. He was in the military, right? And this guy in the military, he, he loves the, uh, the, the Dallas Cowboys, but he was uh, placed somewhere far. And so he couldn't watch the game often. But he, he has the same passionate heart for the Dallas Cowboys. Now, as he was shipped off overseas, what happens was he's able to watch the game through the, uh, the military network. And as they saw the military network, the games here, what ends up happening, right, is that 
the games were pre-recorded. The games were pre-recorded. And so one time, he saw the game, right? And he didn't see the game. He saw the scores of the game. And he knew, that, he knew the Cowboys won. He didn't know how they won, but he knew they won. So there he was sitting with a bunch of his um, army buddies, right? And he's telling me the story. He's like, he's sitting with all his army buddies, and, he's, and he's, uh, he's saying, I was watching it. I was watching it. And it was like a roller coaster. I was like, oh. But I was like, but you saw the winning score. I said, I know. In spite of the quarterback tripping over or throwing in the interception, in my heart, I was like, oh, we're going to lose, right? But in my reality, I wasn't afraid. Because why? I already know the conclusion. I have a sure conclusion, Dallas Cowboys won this match. And so he, as he's watching this guy come, like, losing and, and going behind with his team up to the fourth quarter, he's, he's like, oh, man, like, how could that happen? He's so upset. But he, everyone else is, like, screaming, like, oh, no. But in his mind, he's thinking, no problem. Why? Because he has a living hope. He knows for a fact they're going to win. And so in spite of how he feels during the situation, the hope of the assurance of that keeps him moving forward. You guys get me? You guys get me? And here's the thing about living hope, is that the deeper you grow as a believer, the deeper that hope gets. And it changes and it moves in every stage of your life. This living hope, right? When I, I remember when I was kicked out of my house for telling my grandma I was a Christian, right? She was a Buddhist, you know, Buddhist lady, very hardcore in our family. When she told me I was a Christian, I was kicked out of the home. And I was sitting in my car and I was thinking, is this worth it? Is this worth it being, having this happen to me? And I remember Mark 8, 36 showed up in my mind. It was this, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the world but lose his own soul? And in my head and my heart at that time, though I was sitting in my car and I was kind of weeping because I was like, I can't believe I just did that, right? Betrayed my family lineage, right? The only son, the oldest male son in this family, walked away from his Buddhist ancestry to pursue after this faith and this Jesus. Is it worth it? And in that moment, I realized I have a living hope. I remember in college, studying like a madman, trying to get a competitive GPA and pass my MCAT so that I can get into med school, right? And I remember just, you know, as I was failing physics, and I realized I'm not, I don't get physics at all, right? And I was like sitting there, I was like, is this everything my life is going to be? Is this my life? Is my life all about numbers and vectors and trajectories and tensions and all this? I, like, I cannot handle this. This sucks. Why am I even focused on this? Why is my life narrowed down to this moment here where everything resides on one percentage point, right, between a B and an A, between a GPA that's competitive and a GPA that's going to get you nowhere? Why is my life built off of that one percent? And I remember I walked into chapel Thursday, uh, um, campus chapel, and the praise leader is saying, better is one day in this house, better is one day in this place than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in your house, better is one day in this place than a thousand elsewhere. And I remember sitting in there, overwhelmed by the idea of school and future and life, and, and I remember there will be a day, there will be a day where all of this would mean absolutely nothing because I will be standing in the throne room of my living God. Better is one day here than a thousand of these that I face. Y'all following me? That's a living hope, right? When I was having an existential crisis about my future path, go down a road of medicine and stability or chase after this pounding of my heart that God has put into it for ministry. 
Stability or ministry, right? Pursue a degree that's going to get you at least finances, at least stability in life or ministry, where everything every day becomes kind of like, I don't know what's going on. And in that crisis and in that tragedy and that trial, I remember sitting and the song by Clay Cross comes to mind. I'm not sure if you guys know. It's called I Surrender All. And this, the, the lyrics goes like this. If the source of my ambition is the treasure I obtain, if I measure my successes on a scale of earthly gain, if the focus of my vision is the status I attain, my accomplishments are worthless and my efforts are in vain. Yeah, right? I remember, man. I remember those words as it just pierced my heart as I thought about, that's it. My vision and my hope is not for whatever it is that I think is for me. It's for my glory and for my God, the glory of my God. How do you know, church, how do you know salvation is yours? Is that you have a living hope. In the midst of the tragedies and the trials that you go through, in the midst of the ups and downs of family crisis, in the midst of future thoughts or careers or paths or stress about that, how do you know salvation is yours is that your hope is in the resurrected Christ. You know it. You are assured of his triumph. You know he won. You know it's going to happen. You know that even if you take your last breath, you stand in victory before your God. Do you have that assurance? Is that part of who you are? And lastly, how do you know? There's two things I said. Do you know that salvation is yours? Look into this. Verse 4. That you are given a new birth, a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. Who through, the faith, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed by the last time. You are given an inheritance that cannot ever perish, spoiled, or fade, shielded by God's power. Shielded by God's power. Do you know what that word shielded means? It's not just like there's a shield up here. It literally means that God has made that into a jail cell. That nothing can get out or nothing can get in. There is a complete protection of that. How do you know that you're saved? This is it. There's this passionate, enduring love for God in spite of your stupidity at times. There is a lasting and enduring love for God in spite of your action and your rebellion at times. So here you are, you're walking with Jesus, you're loving on Jesus, you're following after Jesus, and you decided, you know what, I'm going to turn and run the other way. And instead of, and you run, and you try to get as far as you can, but there's something that stops you. You're like a rubber band. You're dragging as far as you can, but you can't go any further because something pulls you back. Something makes you turn around and look back at the cross and say, for where shall I go, oh God? You have the words of eternal life. 
From where shall we run, O God? For you have the words of eternal life. You find yourself drawn back even when you run. Even when you decide to go on a binging spree of sin, you're drawn back over and over. Do you know what shielded means? It means that once you are saved, you know that God will not, cannot, and shall not ever leave your side. You cannot lose your salvation. It is protected by God himself into the day, into the day when what? When the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed. You see, salvation is a multidimensional thing. Salvation is not simply, I prayed a prayer and now I'm saved. Salvation is, I have given my life to Jesus Christ. I know that I am a sinner in need of salvation. And if not for his Grace and mercy, I would be lost. Salvation starts with what? It starts by freeing you from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death. You you recognize that, that you are a son, a daughter, a person who is moving towards this cycle of death in your life. There is no winning here. You recognize that without God, you are lost forever. Salvation begins with what we call justification. You are free from the penalty of sin and that now you are at this very moment being freed from the power of sin. That though sin is trying to draw you the other way, it's like a rubber band. You're running after God, you're taking three steps forward, but then you decide to turn around, take these two steps back, and it's like this huge rubber band that does what eventually pushes you forward again. Three steps forward, two steps back, and still one step forward because God will not let you, let you go. God will not lose you. Those whom he has saved, he will see it to the end of days. Your completion of your salvation happens on the day when you stand before him. You know what happens that day? Sin no longer has its presence in reality. Sin's presence is eradicated. So first you are saved from the penalty of sin, then you are saved from the power of sin, and ultimately you will save from the very presence of sin. That that is the inheritance that's yours. Do you have that in your heart? Do you recognize that? Do you find yourself running and being drawn like that? That's why here at TLC, we always say what? There's no such thing as a lost cause. Do you know why? Because I believe that if God has saved you, you will return. There needs to be situations in your life where we draw you back. God uses us to kind of nudge you to come back. God uses us to kind of kick at you, rebuke you, turn you around. But I know that you will come back. That's why there's no such thing as a lost cause until you take your last breath. Because if you keep running that way, and you don't want to turn back, then the clear indication is what? And you were never his in the beginning. You were never his and he was never yours. When you give lip service to a God that you come and worship, and yet your life is living the opposite way, the real reality, and you're not drawn back at all, there's no, there's no beating in your heart that says, I have wronged you, God. See, when you wrong someone you love, you know how you act. You feel remorse. There's a repentance. There's a wanting to change that comes out of it. And yet when you wrong your God, that's not there. But the Bible says, what Peter says, if this salvation is yours, then no matter how far you want, the longing will come back. You will be drawn back. 
he will say, come home. Stop. Turn around. Now is the time to change. Now is the time to grow. Now is the time to actually live out what you believe. Live out the change that's in your life. Live out the freedom from the power of sin that's trying to haunt you and hold you down and render you useless. Now is the time to stand, to speak, to be incredibly attractive and yet extraordinarily offensive. Now is the time to live out the power that's alive in you, the power that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead. Now is your season, church. Refined by fire does not mean you give lip service to God and there is no change. Refined by fire is that you recognize that and then change comes forward because trials and tragedy can only do one thing with Christ. With Christ, with the word, it will refine you. Without him, it will destroy you. My prayer, my hope is that church, you live a life with a living hope and an inheritance that is completely shielded by God. Now is the season to repent. Let's pray.